You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com When the U.S. Justice Department announced recently that it was opening a new investigation into the 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till, it said the case was a, quote, grotesque miscarriage of justice and that it is examining evidence pointing to the possible involvement of more than a dozen people in the crime. Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam, who were tried and acquitted, are dead. But a number of others are still alive and could face criminal charges for their role in Emmett Till's abduction, beating, murder, and attempts to cover it up. The Justice Department says it is largely because of this young man that the case has been reopened. His name is Keith Beauchamp, an amateur filmmaker from Louisiana. Like a lot of people in this country, he was moved by the shocking photograph of Emmett Till's corpse that he saw while looking through old magazines when he was just 10 years old. And ever since, Beauchamp has devoted much of his life to uncovering the truth about what happened to Emmett Till. After seeing the photograph, it shocked me tremendously. And, um... When parents came in and set me down and explained to me at that time the story of Emmett Till. And it hit me hard. It really hit me hard. I heard the same story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember seeing this picture in that Jet magazine when I was a kid. I think Emmett Till and I were probably about the same age in 1955, 14 years old. And growing up in, in Philadelphia, you knew vaguely about the South, but... Like others, my parents had protected me from the realities of the South. When I saw that picture and I said, hey, that's when I got my first lesson about the South. Everyone has a story when they first saw that photograph. It stuck with me that how could this person um, be killed this way? Um, a youth, you know, it was like me. It was amazing to me that something like that could happen. 
Keith Beauchamp told us that after reviewing thousands of old documents and talking to numerous witnesses with knowledge of the crime, he believes that at least 14 people may have been involved in the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Till, and that five of them are still alive. Emmett Till's late great-uncle Mose Wright said there was a black man on the porch when J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant came to take Emmett Till. He also said he heard a woman's voice that night coming from a truck parked outside. He believed it was Roy Bryant's wife, Carolyn, the woman Emmett Till had whistled at several days earlier inside her husband's grocery store in Money, Mississippi. Mose Wright's son, Simeon, Emmett's cousin, says his father told him the same thing. Oh, yes, it was a... Uh... Another man standing on the porch. My dad talked about it. There was uh, another person in the truck because when they marched Emmett out to the truck and they asked the person inside the truck, is this the one? My dad said he heard a woman's voice identifying Emmett as the boy that did the whistling. So that must have been Brian's wife, Mrs. Brian? At that time, we believed it was uh, Brian's wife. And after 48 and some odd years, there's nothing has arisen to dispel that uh, belief. Apparently, the local authorities back then believed it, too. And according to FBI communiques, issued an arrest warrant for Carolyn Bryant on suspicion of kidnapping. But she was never arrested or charged. Today, we've learned that Carolyn Bryant is a focus of the Justice Department's new investigation suspected of having assisted her husband Roy and J.W. Milam in the abduction of Emmett Till. She was divorced in 1979 and has since remarried and moved several times. She had all but disappeared from public view until we found her, now age 70 and known as Carolyn Dunham, living in Greenville, Mississippi. While our cameraman was able to take these pictures of her, when I went to her house, she wouldn't answer the door. Moments later, her son, Frank Bryan, arrived, and we tried to talk to him. Can we talk to Mrs. Dunham? Can you talk to me either. Can I tell you get her to come out? No. I have some questions I'd like to ask her about Emmett Till. Okay. I'm sorry? I'm too bad. Will she come out and talk to us? What did I just tell you? Tell me again. No. She won't? No. She's back. I'm back? Goodbye. Goodbye. You're leaving? We called the house later in the day, and neither Frank Bryant nor his mother Carolyn would discuss the Emmett Till case any further. We've learned that the Justice Department could complete its investigation within a year, and criminal charges against at least five people could follow. But the Justice Department and the FBI declined to comment context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, February 15th, 2017. So I have been told. Broadcast for today, uh, we're supposed to be talking about uh, not just the murder of Emmett Lewis Till, uh, 1955, August of 1955, uh, in Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, specifically, there's been a lot of attention uh, within the last couple of weeks 
uh, right in between the Dr. King holiday and the beginning of Black History Month in February. Uh, there's a brand new book uh, released by Timothy B. Tyson, Dr. Timothy B. Tyson. Uh, he's a white male uh, historian. Uh, his book, uh, The Blood of Emmett Till, uh, just came out, and there's been a lot of uh, publicity. Uh, I think some of you all uh, are aware of the book, have uh, mentioned it on the program, and posted articles about it. I think the lead uh, talking point for the text has been that Timothy Tyson, this white man, got an interview with Carolyn Bryant, who you heard being discussed in the uh, audio at the beginning of the broadcast. Uh, he got an interview with her in 2008. As you heard, uh, she declined to speak with uh, the staff from 60 Minutes. I think that broadcast was from 2005 with 60 Minutes. But uh, she declined to speak with them, and she hasn't done interviews. She's, you know, done been efficient and effective uh, at being a recluse and just staying to herself. But Timothy Tyson uh, did an interview with her. In fact, uh, the way that he has told the story... Uh, I believe it's her daughter-in-law reached out to him. They read some of his other work on racism and they, they being Carolyn Bryant Dunham and her daughter-in-law requested to speak with Timothy Tyson. So he met, interviewed her, uh, and I think she gave him a copy of her uh, unpublished memoirs on the Emmett Till murder. Uh, I think her her unpublished book, I think it's called More Than a Wolf Whistle, uh, if my memory is correct. But anyway, he gives her, she gives him uh, a copy of her memoirs and uh, his notes from that interview, as well as her uh, autobiography, is sealed until 2038. Anyway, Mr. Tyson's new book just came out in January. Lots of publicity. I'm pretty sure it's going to be uh, a bestseller if it's not already uh, it's been getting lots of attention the New York Times did uh, a review on it and then like additional write-ups uh, related to the book and the Emmett Till murder uh, other outlets have uh, as well uh, we talked about it uh, on the program and one of our listeners, in fact our listener down in Georgia she recommended that I reach out to Mr. Keith Beauchamp uh, because number one, he's been a guest on the program before. Uh, he did a documentary film, uh, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till, uh, that came out in 2005. He worked with Mamie Till Mobley, uh, Emmett Till's mother. Uh, he worked with her for about eight and a half years uh, before he produced the uh, film uh, documentary uh, on Till's murder. Uh, and just being really vested uh, in the case, but I reached out to him uh, to get his thoughts on the book. I had I had my concerns about it, but Mr. Beauchamp, he's much more knowledgeable uh, than myself, reached out to him. Uh, he shared a lot of great uh, just thoughts, insights uh, about the book, concerns uh, that he had uh, about the book. Uh, he has met Timothy Tyson personally. Uh, which he shared and they've talked and what have you, but he still had uh, concerns. Uh, I ended up writing an article uh, which was published this past weekend at Atlanta Black Star, uh, where I include uh, some of the highlights of the conversation interview that we did uh, last week when I spoke with him. Uh, I'm writing up the story where I express some of the uh, concerns that I have about Mr. Tyson's book and his characterization of uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham. 
uh, Mr. Uh, Beauchamp, he was gracious enough to give us a lot of great uh, quotes uh, and information uh, to add to the report. I posted it on Facebook, the Twitter page. You can check it out. Uh, at Atlanta Black Star should still be easy to uh, access on the site. Uh, and we're supposed to follow up today uh, and just go uh, go over some of those main points, go into more detail uh, about the case. Uh, I unfortunately have not been able to get through to Mr. Beauchamp. I called him a few times and I was just getting uh, voicemail. Uh, I had contacted him uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday evening, uh, just to confirm to make sure we were uh, he was going to be with us on the program. Uh, and he wrote back and uh, just requested the uh, call-in information to make sure he knew where to dial. I sent him that information this afternoon. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I just haven't been able to get back in touch with him. Uh, I will try to ring him again i just called him about five minutes ago but i'll try and ring him again uh in a few moments here and i'm um, keeping my email open in case he uh drops me a line or uh even the switchboard because he does have the call in information in case he calls in but uh yeah i was really uh looking forward to sharing some of his uh views uh because as i said he has met timothy T- uh, timothy tyson personally it's not like they're you know going on vacation uh, every year or hanging out on a daily basis. But I mean, they have uh, talked in person before they've talked about the Emmett Till case. Uh, And he said specifically, I think I included this in the article. He said that, you know, he had a lot of respect for uh, Timothy Tyson's work, uh, his work as a historian. Uh, And uh, he, he doesn't have anything bad to say about him. I think the quote that he said uh, that stood out specifically, he said, uh, Timothy Tyson is one of those, uh, white guys that you want on your side uh, in the you know battle against racism. I think that was his quote specifically, but he just said, uh, Mr. Beauchamp, uh, he just said that he felt like, uh, number one, the same thing that I expressed, that it's not shocking, or at least it should not be shocking, that Carolyn Bryant Dunham or any other white person lied. Um, I think that's at least a lot of what I've been seeing in the coverage of the book. Uh, it's part of the main talking point that, oh man, I can't believe it. She lied. She admitted that she lied. And I mean, that's just a regular thing, particularly for this time period, but any era of white supremacy, uh, that's standard, uh, white people lying and making up stories, uh, to exonerate, justify, uh, obfuscate the murder of black people. It can be one black person, uh, as in the case of Emmett Till, or a large number of black people. Uh, we start talking about some of these massacres, Tulsa, Oklahoma. You heard Mr. Fuller talking about that, or Rosewood, uh, Slocum, Texas. Uh, we talked about that with ER Bills some time ago. Hundreds of these incidents, and you see the same thing where they end up coming in and lying about the justification uh, for why they had to do this, or what happened, or the circumstances. You just see that sort of thing all the time uh so that was one uh the next thing that i thought was really important is you know mr beauchamp questioned why would timothy tyson or anyone sit on this information uh timothy tyson did this interview uh with this white woman in 2008 this book is just coming out now that's almost a decade uh they had 
a grand jury indictment. You heard that in the 60 Minutes uh, clip. Or excuse me, they didn't have an indictment, but they did convene a grand jury in 2007 uh, to consider indicting Carolyn Bryant Dunham for manslaughter in the Emmett Till case. And they declined, the grand jury declined to uh, indict her. Uh, this was in 2007. So he did this interview uh, in, you know, pretty short in a pretty short time period to where she was being indicted on serious charges and he just said you know you don't you don't think to take that information your notes her memoirs to the fbi or just you know to someone and say hey this this person who has been a suspect in a murder investigation uh you know i just did an interview with her she doesn't even do interviews this might be the first time she's done an interview in you know a half century uh these are the notes that i got and she's admitting that she lied during part of her testimony like you don't think to take that information immediately to the authorities to the fbi like to the family that was another important point i thought uh mr beauchamp uh said you know he again he worked with uh mamie till mobley before her death that's emma till's mother he worked with her for almost a decade before he uh completed his documentary film and he met quite a few of emmett till's relatives uh he said and has you know remained in contact with them over the years he said that they were blindsided i think that was the exact term that he used about this information that mr tyson apparently did not reach out to them in advance uh, to give them notice that he had done this interview with her, that she admitted to lying, that he didn't reach out to them to share this information. Uh, and he just said, you know, just just from a moral perspective with, you know, the gravity of this case, the monumental significance uh, of this case, uh, the March on Washington in 1963, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. It was on August 28th. 1963 because that was the day that Emmett Till was killed in 1955 August 28th uh, Rosa Parks uh, in addition to all of the great work that she did for decades before her refusal to move uh, on that Alabama bus that was in 1955 that was just you know a few months uh, after Emmett Till had been killed and she said that that was heavily on her mind and influencing her conduct and her decision that you know I'm going to exercise some black self-respect I'm not just going to continue to tolerate this abuse she said that specifically and so many more people I think it's it's in the uh, the Hollywood rendition of Muhammad Ali when uh, Will Smith uh, plays Muhammad Ali. It's right there where he gets on the bus and he sees the Jet Magazine image of, of Emmett Till's casket. I mean, this this case for for all of the monumental uh, significance of this case. Why wouldn't you at least go to the family? If you're not going to go to anyone else, at least go to the family and, you know, just, hey, for all of your decades of suffering. I talked to her. This is what she had to say. Like, why wouldn't you just do that? Uh, some of, and again, a lot of these concerns uh, are brought up in the article. Um, one of the other things that I thought was really important, um, the omission. This is one just from me reading the book. I didn't read the entire book, but I read more than 50 percent of it. Uh, and I read uh, enough to know uh, from what I read and talking to other people and, and, you know, even looking through skimming through some of the sections that I wasn't able to read in detail. I did not see any evidence that Mr. Tyson uh, and I've uh, heard interviews and I've read reviews of the book. I have not seen anywhere in any of the coverage of this text where Carolyn 
Bryant Dunham's behavior is not presented as some isolated incident of a lying white woman instigating and being a central figure in the lynching, torture, maiming of a black person. That is, I mean, it is is totally ahistorical. Timothy Tyson, in addition to being an author, he is a historian. He has written other books on racism and specifically these types of murders, uh, black males being killed around some rape allegation. Now, he does discuss the black beast rapist mythology, but he leaves out the white woman's culpability that there are lots of Carolyn Bryant Dunham's in history. That's something that he excludes. When I spoke to Mr. Beauchamp about that, he he was in uh, complete agreement. And in fact, in that article, I was going to read uh, this quote with Mr. Beauchamp uh, in the article that I wrote uh, that where it just got published. I quoted from uh, Melissa N. Stein. I could have quoted from Dr. Curry and even some other people that we've had on the program. Melissa Stein, she's a white woman, suspected race soldier. She was on the program in the spring of last year. She wrote the book Measuring Manhood and the segment where she writes. White women were not simply passive victims whose image was invoked in lynching rhetoric. Rather, as historian Grace Elizabeth Hale notes, white women often directed the very rituals by which white men recaptured their own masculinity through the castration of the black male. After all, the black man's supersexual image was often the result of their testimony. Some women were given the honor of delivering the final fatal blow. This is from uh, Melissa Stein's Measuring Manhood. Uh, and again, we talked about this with Dr. Curry. In fact, Dr. Curry uh, recommended uh, Melissa N. Stein. He was on the program a few weeks before her visit. This was all in 2016. Dr. Curry, on his visit, he had, we'd been talking about the same subject, and he said in his view, there has been a deliberate effort, uh, not just his view according to his research, there's been a willful effort to obscure and to repress the role that white women have played in these acts of terrorism, violence against black people, uh, that there's been a deliberate role to obscure this and he's noted text he, that was why he mentioned uh, Melissa N. Steins because she was one of the uh, scholars who has pointed this out uh, their role in all of this and we talked about it on the program when she visited how sometimes they would have the white woman do the exact same thing particularly when you put it in that lens she describes almost exactly what Carolyn Bryant Dunham is suspected to have done where they take her out the white men take her out in the lynching party so that she can identify whoever the black male offender is whoever is going to be killed and mutilated they pick him out and sometimes she might you know they might give her the axe or the knife or whatever to participate in the the butchering uh, of this black person uh, or however else she's supposed to uh, participate so that she can approve uh, that her honor has been restored and, you know, justice has been served, whatever it's supposed to be. Um, but, yeah, this, you know, gets conveniently left out when we just think of, you know, racism. That's why it's today, the man, the man, the man. And we consistently leave out the white woman. He also said that uh, in his view, 
uh, it gave a characterization of Carolyn Bryant as a victim. It was just another story because she's in her 80s now in that clip. Uh, that clip was, I think it was like 2005, the 60 minute segment. She's in her 80s now. So it's like, oh my gosh, this, she's almost got a foot in the grave, this 80 year old white woman. And he even presents it, he says, uh, to the New York Times. He says that she was uh, coerced. That's the way that he describes it, that uh, her husband, Roy Bryant, he was abusive. Uh, he says specifically when he was uh, interviewed with the New York Times, he said the circumstances under which he told the story were coercive. Uh, Dr. Tyson says she's horrified by it. There's clearly a great burden of guilt and sorrow. That's the way uh, it was described in the New York Times. And I think uh, we have Mr. Beauchamp with us uh, glad I was hanging out because I think it's you know this is this is such a important uh, historical event and to have someone who is extremely informed uh, on this matter not just informed and did a documentary film but informed where the brilliant research that he did in his 20s led the Department of Justice to reopen their investigation uh, into the lynching of Emmett Lewis Till and that's how you ended up having the indictment part of that work led to uh, Carolyn Brian Dunham being indicted or not indicted excuse me the grand jury where they declined to indict her in 2007 but at least they did have the grand jury a part of that uh, was based on the work that uh, Mr. Beauchamp conducted uh, again in his 20s and uh, putting the film together the untold story of Emmett Lewis Till so glad we have him uh, with us finally uh, Mr. Beauchamp are you with us sir? Yes, sir. I, I want to first apologize to you and your listeners because I, I didn't um, have the time <laughs> for our radio interview tonight. So I want to first apologize to you all, but also to thank you for the platform. Oh, thank you for sharing with us. And my apologies as well. If I had messed up and not getting the time included in the email or just being uh, not as efficient with the communication, but we're glad we, we got you with us um, for for our listeners. I already shared you were you were with us before and we talked about a lot of your uh, great films, uh, the work that you did on the Moore's Ford Bridge lynching uh, that took place in 1946 in Georgia. Lots of outstanding scholarship. Uh, just anything that folks should know about who you are, the work you do before we get started. Well, um, I think what the subject matter that you're talking about today described me most. Um, the Till case has been a part of my life for over 20 years now. Um, I'm not sure if you, your listeners heard the story before how I got started, but I think that may be a great place to start um, this interview. Um, I became familiar with the Till story when I was 10 years old when I came across a Jet magazine photograph of Emmett Till. And like many of us who saw that photograph for the first time, I was shocked tremendously um, because I didn't know what this picture was. And my parents just so happened to be walking um, past the, the study at the time when I, with this magazine in my hand. And they were kind of, I should say, forced to tell me the story. It wasn't a, a moment where they felt um, it was time. Um, it, it was something that came upon them and they had to tell me at that moment and I was shocked, and, and that face, that image of Emmett Till was stu stuck with me because here on one page there's this angelic face of this young boy, sort of a mirror image such as myself, and on this other page there's this horrific face of this monster. 
And so after they told me the story, um, they kept, the, the name Emmett Till kept resurfacing. When I got in high school, I was interracially dating. And the first thing that my parents would tell me before I left the house that night was don't let what happened to Emmett Till happen to you. So it became an educational tool to teach me about the racism that still exists in society today. But it wasn't until after, uh, I have to say, my real run-in with racism where I felt compelled to fight injustice. And that was two weeks before my high school graduation when I was assaulted by an undercover police officer for dancing with a white classmate of mine. And so after that incident took place, um, I felt I needed to be in a, uh, a position of power. I began to study criminal justice at Southern University of Baton Rouge in hopes of becoming a, um, a civil rights attorney. But then during my junior year of college, my childhood friends moved to New York City and started their own film production company. And I went to New York and I visited them um, here in New York and told my parents that if the film industry and you know, what I was doing here didn't work out. I would go back to school and it eventually worked out because at a meeting one night we were, we were talking and they asked me what, you know, if there's something I would like to produce as a film, what would that be? And the name Emmett Till came to me, the story I heard most of my life. So that's in a nutshell, my first introduction into the Till case eventually met Emmett Till's mother in um, early 96 and befriended her and she put me under her wing and we became extremely close and it's through her passion and her perseverance and um, her tenacity to, to after all these years to fight for justice for her son that inspired me to continue that work and thank God in 2004 our prayers were answered when I produced um, the untold story of Emmett Lewis Till, which was my first documentary, which took nine years to produce, by the way. And it was that film that, that got the case reopened and started my whole career as a filmmaker. Wow. Context of white supremacy. Um, I think for a lot of people who at least have some superficial understanding of the Emmett Till case and these two white brutes come and abduct him from his uncle's residence uh, in the middle of the night and torture and kill him and dump his body uh, in a river. Uh, I think the role of Carolyn Bryant Dunham uh, is either obscured, minimized, or a lot of people just aren't as informed. Uh, can just from your research, what you've uncovered, can you give our listeners what your understanding of Carolyn Bryant Dunham's role in the murder of Emmett Till was? Well, in 1955, when Emmett Till arrived in the Mississippi Delta, um, he, you know, he was there for a summer vacation. And within a week's time, he would go into the store. And um, this, this, this grocery store that catered to African-Americans, by the way, convenience store, I guess you would say. And in this store, he basically, you know, encountered Carolyn Bryant, the white woman who's always been at the center of the Emmett Till murder case. And while he was in the store, he purchased some bubble gum. And while he was purchasing this gum, he had two cousins who were actually coming in and out of the store accompanying him. As he walked out of the store, he wolf-whistled at Carolyn Bryant. 
And at that moment, she ran to her car to go get her gun. Um, and by the time she returned towards on the porch of the store, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of rusting here, but by the time she basically came back onto the porch of the store, Emmett Till and his cousins left. And so that, you know, a few days later, um, Emmett Till, I'm sorry, a few days later, Carolyn Bryant, um, had to tell her, tell her husband what transpired at the store. And it was at this time where they planned to go and, and actually teach Emmett Till a lesson, which is the way they phrased it. Um, one, one evening, I, I shouldn't say one evening, but early on, on August 28th at 2 o'clock a.m. in the morning, the two men, Roy Bryant and Carolyn, uh, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milo, went to Emmett's great uncle's home and abducted him from the home. Um, in the car with him, I mean, with the man that night, is a person that we believe to be Carolyn Bryant. And there were also other men who were there. Um, three of them were African-Americans who were forced to participate in the kidnapping and murder. So from there, they took Emmett um, to Drew, Drew into, I'm sorry, they took Emmett from mighty Mississippi to Drew, Mississippi, which, which, which is another place in the county, outside the county, I should say, in LaFleur County. The kidnapping took place in LaFleur County. The, um, the body ended up being found three days later in the Tallahatchie River. And so this is basically how the, the story actually started but um i know tonight we're talking about the to the topic of carolyn bryant and her role in the kidnapping and murder of emmett lewis till and so i have to go back to that night when emmett till was abducted from his great uncle's home and as he was being brought to the vehicle that night when he was being taken away there was a woman in the car who identified emmett till we have always believed it was her. Um, Most Wright himself had written a number of, of articles about this particular case and that experience that night and what transpired. And he's always stated that it was Carolyn Bryant, and as well as the local authorities at the time. Um, it was never something that they didn't know. Um, they were quite aware of who was in the car that night because they issued a warrant out for arrest, a warrant that was never served, by the way. So, of course, this led to the trial in 1955, where J.W. Milo and Roy Bryant was acquitted uh, for, the kid, um, for the murder of Emmett Till and later acquitted by a grand jury for the kidnapping of Emmett Till. Wow. You, because of your work, uh, you've already touched on really close work with the Till family, Mamie Till Mobley, his mother. You produce the film. Uh, you uncover all this tremendous research. Uh, the FBI, they reopen their investigation into the murder of Emmett Till. Uh, they end up having a grand jury convened to consider yes. manslaughter charges against Carolyn Bryant Dunham in 2007. 
they decline to indict her. Uh, and there are quite a few black people uh, on this grand jury in Mississippi. Uh, why do you think they decline to indict? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because this whole story of Emmett Lewis Till is about protecting the white woman manhood. I mean, not white woman manhood, white womanhood. And, you know, you first have to understand that. Before the Emmett Till murder case took place in 1955, you had the Brown versus Board of Education decision that ended segregation in public, public schools. It was because of this action you had the formation of the White Citizens Council. Now, the White Citizens Council was against integration entirely, and it was a, you know, um, an organization that was filled with very prominent people. And um, it was their, you know, through their effort, they were fighting against integration. One of the main focus of this organization was a fight against, against mongrelization, which, is, of course, is intermarrying um, as well as um, interbreeding, <laughs> I would say biracial breeding, I guess you would say. And so um, it was through these efforts that you had the Trinity killing. Um, and I have to explain this because it's very important to talk about. They're against not only, of course, integration, they're, they're, against, they're against voters' registration and so on, especially voters' registration for black folks. So in 1955, this is the atmosphere Emmett Till entered into. Two and a half months before Emmett's arrival, you had the murder of Reverend George um, W. Lee. Reverend George Lee was killed in Belzoni, Mississippi, for trying to register black voters. Two weeks before Emmett Till's arrival into the Delta, you had the murder of Lamar Smith in Brookhaven, Mississippi, who was murdered by, I mean, murdered by members of the White Citizens Council, by the way, but in front of about 100 people, no one ever came forward and testified against the per perpetrators who committed this crime, and justice never prevailed in these two cases. So here walks Emmett Till into this atmosphere, this full atmosphere of Dixiecrat hate, totally different from any other part of the state of Mississippi. This place where we're talking about in the Delta, the Florida County, Tallahatchie County was considered to be the cotton curtain of the, of the world. This is where you, it was the cotton capital at one time of the world. And so this is the atmosphere Emmett Till entered into. So it was fate that he walked into the, the doors of this convenience store at the time and, you know, met, I guess, met Carolyn Bryant in the way that he did and ultimately made a wolf whistle that would end his life. And because of this happened, I mean, because of his murder, you had, of course, the makings of the civil rights movement or you had the, he became the catalyst that sparked the civil rights movement. Because in 1955, it was only considered to be the black resistance movement. The civil rights movement only became the civil rights movement when 
you, it became biracial when you had whites coming out and speaking out for it. But before, before 1960s and 1955, it was always considered the black resistance moment. So um, with that said, <laughs> getting to Carolyn Bryant, in terms of the, the, the investigation in 2004, the why, why the case was reopened, it was reopened because we have always known and history books have always written about the two men, main assailants, perpetrators who were involved with the case, and that was J.W. Malum and Roy Bryant. No one, else, no one else was ever identified as being involved with the kidnapping and murder. But through my research, I discovered it was not just Roy Bryan and J.W. Malum. It was up to 14 people involved with the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Lewis Till. By the time the reopening of the case in 2004, there were five people who we were looking at who was involved with the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Lewis Till. One of them was Carolyn Bryant. So the reason why we were so focused on Carolyn is because in 1955, as I said earlier, there was a warrant out for arrest, which she was never served. We later found out the reason why she was not served the warrant is because the sheriff stated that she had kids to take care of. And so, of course, I was shocked by what I found um, this was the information that I handed over to the FBI that there were more people involved with the murder who was never brought to the court of law, and that's why the case was reopening in 2004. Now, the information that the evidence, I should say, that we had, um, and let's talk, you know, we're going to talk particularly about Carolyn Bryan here because this is why we're t discussing Till today. Carolyn Bryan, we were hoping to get her charged on culpable manslaughter charges. And in layman's terms, Carolyn Bryan had to know the danger Emmett Till would be in and did nothing to stop it. The controversy surrounding, you know, us looking at Carolyn Bryan was the fact that in 1955, many felt that she was not properly identified as the woman who was actually in the car that night that identified Emmett Till. Well, through my research, I found that there were two other kids who were actually assaulted before Carolyn Bryant, I'm sorry, before they even located Emmett Till. And these two guys, I mean, kids um, were brought forward to be a part of the investigation. One kid was roughed up in the store, um, the Bryant store at the time, and basically Roy Bryant mistaken him as being Emmett Till. The kid walked in and, and talked about being in, in Chicago. He assumed the kid was Emmett Till, so he ran over and started roughing this kid up and, and verbally assaulting him. And Carolyn Bryant ran out, and she had to tell him this is not, in her words, this is not the right nigger. The second kid was walking alongside of the highway on the night they were going to look for him until they see this kid. You had Carolyn Bryant in the cab of the truck, Roy Bryant, and J.W. Milo, who's also in the cab of the truck. On the bed of the truck was a black field hand by the name of Johnny D. Washington. 
And he was on the back of the truck, and as they drove past this kid, they yell at Johnny B. to grab the kid. Johnny B. grabs the kid, tosses him on the back of the truck, in the bed of the truck, holds his head up to the cab of the truck, and Carolyn Bryant turns around and says that this is not the right nigger they throw, to throw him off the, off the truck. They end up throwing him off the moving truck. So what I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm telling you this is because at the grand jury hearing, we did not have to prove that Carolyn Bryant was at the home that night when Emmett Till was abducted. We didn't have to prove that she was the one that identified him. The only thing we had to prove was that Carolyn Bryant understood the danger Emmett Till would be in and did nothing to stop it. By these two stories alone, we felt strongly that it was shown that she was accessory to the crime, that she was culpable, she actually committed culpable, culpable negligence because she understood the danger Emmett Till would be in and did nothing to stop it. This information is something that I hoped was actually presented into the grand jury hearing of 2007. There's no way to tell because you know that grand jury hearings is private. But with that particular evidence, I thought it was strong enough, as well as, and I'll co-sign the FBI on this, as well as the FBI, because it was the FBI coming in to investigate the case and handing over their findings to the state and giving them the charge that they should charge Carolyn Bryant on. So the Justice Department and the FBI are the ones who actually gave the charge to the local authorities in LaFleur County in, in, in terms of presenting it to the grand jury in hopes of getting a conviction. Well, it didn't happen. And the only way I can understand that it didn't happen is because of the protection of white womanhood. Because Carolyn Bryant would have been the first person ever to be indicted for a civil rights murder case if she was indicted um, in 2007. First white woman? First white woman. It's never happened in the history of this country. I've never heard of a story of a white woman ever being indicted for a civil rights murder. Mm. That I thought was, was really important as well, that this was not uh, the actual trial. Uh, so you have, as they say, a much uh, lower bar to clear in terms of showing culpability, that there is reason that we should have a trial and look at all the evidence to see if uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham, if she is guilty, negligible uh, homicide, as they say, is she guilty uh, in this case? And exactly. we can't even get an indictment. I feel like I've heard that before where you can't even get an indictment uh, for a black person being killed um, in Timothy B. Tyson, uh, in his new book or in the interview uh, he did with the New York Times for his new book, where Carolyn Bryant Dunham is pretty much the, the leading character, at least she's on par with Emmett Till, in my opinion. He told them that the circumstances under which Miss Dunham told the story, meaning the lies about Emmett Till and, you know, he sexually accosted her and whatever else. He says the circumstances under which she told this story were coercive. Uh, she's horrified by it. There's clearly a great burden of guilt and sorrow. What do you think of that? Well, you know, with the information I just revealed to you, and let me apologize to you guys because I've been like running around dealing with this for the last few weeks. 
And it's kind of hard for me to actually revisit this case because it was a case that I pushed back on my on the back burner in a sense because I was so frustrated and angry that we did not get an indictment to, in this case. And through the reopening of this case, of course, the FBI launched their civil rights cold case initiative, revisiting uh, many unsolved civil rights murder cases from our past, hoping to see if they want new investigations or possible prosecutions. Um, because of this, I was brought in to help the Bureau investigate many of these civil rights murder cases. And so, um, you know, it's kind of hard for me to go back and forth because all the cases I've investigated, <laughs> you know, since 2007 to actually be, you know, come back and, and actually think um, clearly about this particular case. So I want to apologize to your listeners the way I'm rambling, <laughs> you know, and bringing this up. Um, no worries. It's it's interesting because, you know, with this new, I have to say, a mission, it's not necessarily new. Through our research and, of course, the FBI findings, findings um, it was automatically known that she lied. It was never a debate about if she lied or told the truth on the witness stand. We've always known that she lied because if you look at, the witnesses that I was able to interview, which were, um, of course, Reverend, I say Reverend, yeah, Reverend Willow Parker and Simeon Wright, the two cousins who were in the store with Emmett um, at a specific point in time. Whatever Carolyn Bryant stated in the courtroom, the window was too small for anything of that nature to happen at the store that day. And I say this because you also had witnesses, more witnesses out there who are lingering around the store at, on the porch, which is like 10 feet away from the counter, the store counter, where she claimed all this action took place. She also claimed that she screamed. No one heard her scream because it never happened. Um, Emmett Till's mother, you know, when she heard about what her testimony was, in the courtroom, she automatically came, she automatically said, I should say, that the words and the things that Carolyn Bryan stated that Emmett Till did was not something that would have been easily done by him because he had a speech impediment. So anyone who, who actually looked at this in a logical manner would understand that we knew from the start that she lied. Even the Bureau understood she lied when I met with them because, you know, we, you know it was no way that we could actually go after her for perjury because um, the statute of limitations of perjury was two years. So there was no way they could retroact that law. But we were looking more at her being accessory to the crime and culpable negligence. And so I believe... The Bureau believed that we had enough information that could have been presented to a grand jury that could have gotten an indictment. The reality is, is that there's no way <laughs> in the South that you could imagine a white woman being indicted for a civil rights murder. That's the only way we can go back to these things. 
because you're going to have people have their arguments and so on and tell you, uh, you know, their thoughts of why Carolyn Bryant couldn't have, could not have been an indictment. But the whole court in 1955 was a sham. It was to protect white womanhood. The trial in 1955 was not a murder case. It was, a, it was an identity case. It was to prove that the body that was pulled from the river was that of Emmett Till. The prosecution failed to do that. This is why, why Roy Bryan and J.W. Miley was never brought on the witness stand because the three, three, uh, three days, I should say, before the first grand jury hearing, after Roy Bryan and J.W. Miley was were arrested, the grand jury hearing, the sheriff at the time basically stated that he didn't believe that the body that was pulled from the river was that of Emmett Till. That protected Roy Bryan and J.W. Mollum from being brought into the court of law and testifying on the stand because it became an, an identity trial at that point. It was about having proof to who the, who that body, who the body belonged to or who the body was pulled from the Tallahatchie River. So at the trial in 1955, when Carolyn Bryant stood up in the court and testified, it was ruled inadmissible. She didn't do it in front of a, of, of a jury, not a grand jury, but in front of a jury. And the reason being is because everything that happened prior to the Emmett Till murder didn't matter because it was all about the identity uh, establishing the identity of the body. This is why Emmett Till's mother, Mamie, was brought in to testify. This is why Simeon Wright, the cousin, was brought in to testify, which he never did. He was there to identify the ring that was on Emmett Till's finger because that was the only way they could have properly identified the body at the time because when the body was pulled out from the river, there was the ring on the finger of Emmett Till that everyone noticed which established that that was Emmett Till, that was his body. And so, you know, going back to this new confession, there wasn't nothing new. We knew she lied. Um, it's shocking to a lot of other people because, uh, as well as the public, because it was never truly known. Her role was never truly known. And so now that she made this admission, what happens next? Well, I feel personally that this case should be reopened. Um, I sh well, let me correct myself. I feel that this investigation should be reopened because the case never closed. It's a civil rights murder. Not only that, it's a cold case murder case. And also, there's no statute of limitations on the state level. And so there's this huge push now to get the, re the case reopened, which I feel is very important. Because if Carolyn Bryant made this admission, and not only that, there's these so-called memoirs that was written that are not supposed to be released until 2036, I believe. I think it's extremely important for everyone to be outraged and pushing for the reopening of the investigation so we can get our hands on these memoirs because it would be in those memoirs where we can clear up loose ends or even find out corruption by the state and local officials that would give the FBI and, uh, should I say, the federal government jurisdiction to try this on a federal level rather 
on a state level where we see the most corruption, um, you know, um, that's out there. <laughs> hmm. Mr. Uh, Timothy Tyson, Dr. Timothy Tyson, he was uh, given a copy of Carolyn Bryant Dunham's unpublished memoirs, More Than a Wolf Whistle. He was given a copy when he did his 2008 yes. interview with her. Uh, those, his notes from the interview as well as her memoirs are sealed, as she said, until I think it's 2038. Um, do you, yeah. what's your view? Um, do, uh, Dr. Tyson, he's a historian, he's an author. Uh, is he protecting a source and saying, well, she gave me this information confidentially and I'm just respecting her wishes as a source. And I published the book. He did say that he's read her memoirs and that she doesn't, there's no information, no new information other than she lied, which he's already shared. But what's your thoughts on him sitting on her memoirs and what have you for 2038 and him waiting all this time from the 2008 interview to divulge that, oh yeah, I did this interview and she admitted she lied. Well, for me, it's it's um, a double-edged sword, being that, um, you know, um, T- Dr. Tyson is a friend. Um, we have a number of mutual friends. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, he's a great guy. Um, but with this, I think he failed to understand the impact this would have on the, not just the family, but the public in general, with the information that he was holding. Um, of course, I have to say, Gus, since, you know, we actually talked early on in the week, I did have a chance to talk to Dr. Tyson about a few things, and there were some things that were cleared up. He basically told me that he was not aware that the case um, was still prosecutable. And so um, he was not aware that, the investigation could continue continue on. He felt that it was closed, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And so it's it's strange because I'm caught in the middle of fighting for justice and keeping my promise that I gave the gave the late Mamie Till Mobley. And you know, here's my friend who seems to truly didn't understand, you know, what information that he was gathering and how impactful it would have on the case because he assumed that the case was done with and nothing could ever happen to Carolyn Hyatt. And so this is stuff that we're working out at the moment. And, um, you know, I was upset. You asked me how I felt. I was very upset because I felt that he was obstructing justice and, you know, holding in this information and protecting Carolyn Bryant. Well, he stated to me, he's not protecting Carolyn Bryant. And so I'm hoping that, you know, within the next few days, um, things will begin to, to, to move forward because, as you know, by now, um, with a lot of the Till interests out there, there's been members of Congress that have come forward asking for the reopening of the investigation. Um, you have the DA and Attorney General right now um, trying to make a decision on what they're going to do. Jeff so Sessions. My <laughs> when you say the, yeah. the well, well, I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking of the, the Attorney General of Mississippi. Oh, okay. And the DA of the county where the murders occurred, and you know, I, I can't say that Sessions won't do this because, if you recall, the Emmett Till case was reopened in 2000, 2004 by the Ashcroft 
um, administration, <laughs> you know, um, Bush administration, I should right. say, uh, with Attorney General Ashcroft. And so, you know, things work for us at times and things work, works against us at times. But this is something that's, bi- that's not bipartisan. I mean, that's bipartisan, I'm sorry. Um, that's not partisan. Um, the Emmett Till case, everyone under the sun knows this is one of the greatest injustices ever committed on American soil. Um, it was because of the murder of Emmett Till that Rosa Parks decided not to get up from her seat on that bus in Montgomery, Alabama. It was because of the murder of Emmett Till that Dr. Martin Luther King decided to take on the Montgomery bus boycott. So without the murder of Emmett Lewis Till, you would not have had the civil rights movement that we know. Who knows? The civil rights movement probably would have never existed. So my argument is not um, about if Emmett should have been killed or not. Um, the things that has happened changed not only America, but changed the world in general because everyone has have benefited from the American civil rights movement. So, you know, we're at this moment in place now where we're dealing with the woman who was at the center of the Emmett Till case. And we're asking the question, what should happen now? Well, I believe that justice should prevail. If we want to stay true to what this country supposedly stands for, freedom and equality and, and so on and justice, then we must let the justice system work. Will it work in our favor? I don't know. But we have to keep hope, keep a hold on to hope that it will. So we're at this point now where in a few days, to be honest with you, we will know if this case is going to be reopened or not. And so I just hope that it will be reopened and we have another chance at, at, fi- at finally getting justice. Because it's not just justice, getting justice for the family. It's getting justice for the whole country and many of those who have been affected by this murder. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, that's my stance. It's always been my stance. I've always been consistent with my message. I'm going to get justice by any means necessary. I'm sorry, necessary. I don't care who's involved, (laughs) you know, friend or no friend. I'm sorry. If you stand away, stand in the way of justice for Emmett Till, then you're going to get what you deserve. That's it. Hmm. Did Mr. Uh, Tyson, did he explain uh, why he didn't share uh, what he discovered with the relatives and family of Emmett Till? You know, that's something I did ask him because I, you know, I was troubled by that because, you know, being I'm in the middle actually in the middle. I'm dealing with the family and then I'm hearing from his end and I'm, I'm actually trying to give him enough respect because I know the people that surround him. And so, you know, it took me some time to, to get to the point, get to this point to really ask him the question because I thought that by now with all the interviews that he had, he had done <laughs> over the past couple of weeks, someone would have asked him, you know, that particular question. And so, you know, he said to me that it was, he, he basically apologized and said it was insensitive that he would think, I mean, that he didn't think about this. And so 
again, I, I want to give him the benefit of doubt. I want him to answer these questions, and, and we take from what his answers are. You know, we, we, we take what it, you know, we take, we take that information and, and make that determination among ourselves. Um, he's very, very connected with some very powerful um, black people in our community who are really doing things that, you know, that's making a big difference in change. And so I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt um, and say that maybe he didn't really know um, what he had his hands on. Um, perhaps we would know this, you know, in the upcoming um, days. But, you know, again, it's a hard thing. Because, you know, you know, when we talked before, it was a hard thing for me to talk about this. Um, you know, I really want to hold on to hope that he's a righteous guy, that he wasn't doing this as being an opportunist. Um, of course, the way it came out, it seems that way. Um, but I know how contracts are with your lay, um, with your your distribution companies and your publishers. But um, we shall see. You know, I, I'm I'm just really stressing the point that is important for us to get our hands on those memoirs to see what's there um, to help with the case. Hmm. What's the uh, What's the perfect time if you were going to do a book? on African-American history, a, a book on something like the Emmett Till case. What's the perfect time to publish it? It will be now. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> it will be now because there's nothing more, there's nothing that speaks more to this generation than the story of Emmett Till. What we see, what we see now is not new. Um, what we're seeing now, you can go back and look at the case of Emmett Till in 1955, sort of a mirror image to what is happening today. So I would have to tell you this would be the perfect storm for anyone to write about the story of Emmett Till as well as, you know, talking about the political backdrop that we're seeing today, uh, the same backdrop that is sort of similar, I shouldn't say similar, but a mirror image to the White Citizens Council and the way they were maneuvering them, them, themselves throughout politics in this country. It's the same exact backdrop. And that's one of the most troubling things to think about because I'm 45 now. I st I've started my research at Emmett Till at 22. Never in a million years would I ever think in my lifetime I could actually see history repeat itself. The things, the social ills that we seem to be fighting today are the same social ills that we fought yesterday. It's just that a lot of us are not truly educated about our past. And I firmly believe if we forget our past, history will repeat itself. That's, that is exactly what is taking place today. History is really repeating itself. Wow. The uh, the timing, just for our listeners, I totally agree in terms of what you said, this perfect moment with the Trump administration and things that we see uh, happening globally uh, and comparing that to what happened to Emmett Till in 1955, but also important, the, the timing uh, anytime between the Dr. King holiday 
And Black History Month is always a brilliant time to release books on black history. Something like Emmett Till and Dr. Tyson's new book came out right in between the Dr. King holiday and Black History Month. Um, Were you going to add something? No, no, you're right about that. And it had a lot to do, I'm sure, with a lot of the books. Because there are a number of books on Emmett Till that was released in recent months. And um, I'm sure that he was trying to somehow bring attention to his book. I know maybe not him, but maybe the publishers. I'm just, again, guys, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt until he comes out and he says his piece to the public. Because, you know, media has a way of spinning things. And I don't want to speak for him. I want, for him, want him to speak for himself, and because of the mutual friends that we have, you know, I want to hold him to that. Right on, right on. That's respectable. Uh, I'll just say for for my spell, for myself uh, as a victim <laughs> guarantee qualification, uh, Gus. I've said my general rule of counter racism is that white people never, ever for any reason under any circumstances get the benefit of the doubt as long as racism white supremacy exists and especially not when black people are being harmed anything where black people non-white people are being mistreated white people cannot they cannot they cannot get the benefit of the doubt Ever. And any well-meaning, put that in quotes, white person, any white person that's willing to be reasonable and logical, they would have to concede mm-hmm. that's the logical position that black people should take as long as racism exists. And I have asked white people on the program that question. Quite a few of them have said, <laughs> yeah, and no hesitation, said, yep, that's right. We shouldn't get the benefit of the doubt. That said, I would just yep. say for Mr. Tyson, and remember, for people, Mr. Tyson is not 20. Mr. Tyson is older. No, he's right. he's he's over forty. And Mr. Ty- Dr. Tyson, excuse me, Dr. Tyson. Let me say that, at Dr. Tyson. He's, he's yes. a scholar. Right? He, he's a scholar. He's he is a historian. He's not just a scholar. He's a historian who's written books, plural, about racism. Yes. For me to believe that he didn't know that a case like this murder has no statute of limitations that he didn't know that there was just an investigation there was just a grand jury convened about (laughs) this case within a year of him going to do this interview that he didn't know that the thought never popped into his head hmm Maybe I should drop this off to the FBI. Maybe I should make a phone call to the Till family. None of that ever crossed his mind as a historian. That, I mean, you yeah. are asking me a lot. You and might as well right. tell me you got a bridge that you can sell me for a quarter. Hey, well, I'll tell you, Gus, you're right. And it looks bad, man. I just really want him to have his say and to hear him explain himself. You know, what we talked about privately is what we talked about privately. But, um, you know, in a way, I kind of, I, I, you know, you know, we've been going, we've been through a lot in this country. We know the history. We know the history of white womanhood, um, putting, you know, the, the white woman uh, pedestal syndrome. <laughs> we know this. We know that many of our, the murders that took place in this country, especially racial murders, all started out with a white woman. 
or a white woman has some kind of connection to these cases. Look, I mean, I don't want to have to give everyone a history lesson because we know it. Um, again, Tim Tyson is very connected to some powerful, and don't get me wrong, I'm not scared of power. <laughs> I've fought power all my career. Um, but I'm talking about some powerful black folks who are really doing something for this country and for us. Many of them are very pro-black. So I just want him to answer these questions. He's already apologized to me about not talking to the family, and that's something that he has to deal with on his own terms, or not terms, but on his own time with the family, even if they even accept his explanation. Um, right now, it's very important for me to get my hands, or I shouldn't even say my hands, very important for local authorities, even the, the Justice Department and FBI, to get their hands on these memoirs if they can. And so I'll just leave it at that, man. Um, you know, I, I would love to come back on the show and give an update. I, I kind of feel good about everything that is happening because so many people have come forward and urged the, the local and federal authorities to reopen the case. And, you know, we will see in a, in a few days what will happen. And, you know, <laughs> hopefully it's open because if not, I'm still in the veins on everything. <laughs> hey, right on. Just, you know, it's just, you know, it's, this is just an important case. I have to uphold the legacy of Till or the legacy of my friend, maybe Till Mobley. It's important for me to, to uh, you know, to keep my promise that I gave her. I worked too long to get this case back into the public consciousness. You know, I worked too long to get the case reopened in 2004. So I cannot falter now. And it's very important that this case is, the investigation is reopened so we can finally get some justice and closure for the family and for the public. Ashe. Is it okay to take a quick question before you go? I don't want to take your whole evening up, but we had a call. Sure, okay. sure, absolutely. Uh, caller in, this is our retired firefighter. Did you have a question for documentary filmmaker, researcher, Mr. Keith Beauchamp? You should be with us. Greetings, everyone. Can I, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, what's, what's the author's name? What's the guest name? Keith. What's your name, sir? Keith Beauchamp. Keith Beauchamp. Uh, both of y'all was talking at the same time. What, what, what was what was the last name, sir? It's Beauchamp. Oh, Beauchamp. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, I guess you're from Louisiana. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounded like it, yes, sir. Uh, yeah. First, first and foremost, I I, I uh, would just like to commend you on your consistency and determination to uh, to get uh, this matter uh, addressed. Um, and, uh, I can almost feel your, your, your dedication and hard sense of work, uh, towards that. And, uh, and certainly you've done a lot of other things and, uh, and, and, and I, that I think is something to be appreciated, but, uh, uh, I have, I have two questions. The first question is, uh, what do you define as, uh, bringing 
this case to justice? What, what do you, how do you define justice in this case with uh, the murder of uh, this 14-year-old child? Well, that's a great question to ask because, you know, throughout my career, I've worked on so many civil rights murder cases. And, you know, I, I think because I was young, I grew to learn a lot more than someone who would have been of an older age and doing this type of work. Um, through my prism and experience, I was able to see how people accept pain. I understand that pain comes in so many different forms. People accept it in many different ways. Um, you know, through my, the vehicle of, of filmmaking that I've chosen to use to tell these stories, um, a lot of the justice is not courtroom justice. A lot of the justice in these cases is giving a platform for these families to talk about their loved ones who they lost. A lot of these families never, ever had that opportunity um, throughout the civil rights era and beyond. Um, so with the platform that I have, with the number of, you know, numerous television series that I've had over the years, um, my most current, is, of course, is the Injustice Files on Investigation Discovery. It is those type of, those type of platforms that have allowed these families or the voiceless to be able to speak. And that has given them a lot more justice and closure than courtroom justice. So to answer your question, I can't be, you know, the person to claim what type of justice these families deserve. I only need to hear what their thoughts of, are and allow them to tell me what would be justice. Being that I was so close to Emmett Till's mother, who, who's the biggest inspiration of my life, who's my teacher, who nurtured me into this activist that I've become, who's the main reason why I do this work, because this is something that I promised her before she passed away, that I would not only look at the murder of Emmett Lewis Till, but I would also go back and look at all these, at all these other murders that transpired during the civil rights era and make sure justice prevailed in those cases. But maybe... And excuse me, because I would call her by her first name, but Mamie understood what was needed to liberate the minds and to give justice to black people. She knew that Emmett was her son, but she also knew that Emmett was here for a greater cause. And so um, I have to stay in tune with that. And when I say that, she wanted justice for her son. And I have to get justice by any means necessary. And if my friends are caught up in, the, in this web, then so be it. I, I have to keep true to you know, what established me and what became, became a part of my life. So to answer your question again, justice is in the eye of, of the beholder. Justice is also... Um, you know, whatever the family want. And that's what I want. The family, whatever the family want is what I want. And they want true courtroom justice. If that is attainable, if that's not attainable, they want, of course, their voices to be heard. 
And so, and that's all that I'm fighting for right now is whatever they want to transpire. Now, personally, <laughs> we'll go there if you want to hear what I want personally. I want courtroom justice. There's no way this woman should be out enjoying her life and should have been out enjoying all these years and nothing happened. I know the evidence that's against her. This woman should have been indicted in 1955. She have never seen, she should, should have been in jail for the rest of her life, in my words. <laughs> but unfortunately, this is 1955, before the so-called civil rights movement. We couldn't get that kind of justice in the courtroom. Shit, we're fighting, and I'm sorry for cursing, but we're fighting that same fight today. We're still not getting the true justice that black people deserve in the American, you know, in the American justice system. We're still fighting those same fights. Yes, so sir. that's my answer. Well, I, uh, I appreciate uh, your, your answer in the first half of uh, the question that I have, but uh, let me, let me uh, try to frame this, this next question. Uh, and I, I, I guess the question would be, what would be your take on this, what I'm about to say? Uh, someone would say, well, do you think that within the context of racial white supremacy that white people are going to go into the home of that white woman and put her hands behind her back and escort her out of that house and take her to jail and go through a trial, make her go through a trial, and in turn, being that there were even some victims of racism and white supremacy, if they were willing to forgive the murderer who's still alive, murder of nine people in a church, uh, they are probably going to go about the means of, of also uh, forgiving this white woman for something that took place in 1955. Uh, do you actually think that that's going to, as far as with this, uh, this white female, uh, I'm particularly talking about my take, uh, what, what is your take on that? Uh, on, on, uh, yeah, I, I said enough. Go ahead. I think I said enough. <laughs> no, you're right. You know, that's the challenge, man. I mean, to be honest, you want to hold on to hope that something could happen that we could finally see justice, but there's been you know you know the history. There's been so many. And even and even your friend, I suspect, is helping her. Well, you know, and that's you know that's questionable. You 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 understand the position I'm in because when I do these interviews on radio, I, I give myself. I'm the most honest person that you probably would ever meet. I have no skeletons in my closet. I don't have to hide anything. I just want to be straight with the public. This is a dilemma that we've been fighting for generations. We're talking about a generational ill, white womanhood. Do I have hope that this can happen? I can only have faith and hope because everyone said it was impossible for me to get the case reopened in 2004. Mm -hmm. No one helped me. Every scholar, every lawyer, every official, no one supported me. Everybody said I was beating a dead, uh, what, a dead bush. 
that there was no way that this 50-year-old murder case would be reopened by me or in anybody, anyone's lifetime. But it happened. Yes, sir. So when you when you ever able to achieve the impossible or what people believe to be the impossible, you only can have hope on everything else. I don't think that it's coincidence that this woman came out specifically at this time. I don't, you know, to, well, let's put it this way, 2007. I don't think that Tim Tyson, Dr. Tyson, released this book. I don't think it's coincidence. There's another reason why the Emmett Till case won't die, and that's because we have not truly had justice in this case. Whenever you see an unarmed black male being shot and cut down by police on the streets of America, you can't help but think of Emmett Till. His name always metaphorically comes back to fruition. Emmett Till is the Anne Frank of black America. And because of this, I have to hold on to hope that the right thing is done. If the right thing is not done, I want Carolyn Bryant like she's always lived. I want her to always look over her shoulder and wonder if someone is going to knock on her door, either harass her or arrest her. I don't want her, her to have a, a, a good night, put it that way. I'm sorry. Yes, I yes, can't take that hate out of my heart if you want to consider that to be hate. No, but I don't. I, I, just, I just, you know, I'm human. So whatever comes from this, I want her to feel whatever comes to her. If we don't get her in the courtroom, if we don't get her convicted, I guarantee you she'll be thinking about this for the rest of for the rest of her life, or her what the little life that she has left. I at least want her to be scared about going outside, and maybe you know, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm not from the cloth of forgiveness. I, I mean, I can forgive, but I can't forget. People have to understand that Carolyn Byron, although she's 82 years old now, she was 21 years old at the time. She yes, was sir. a young murderer. I'm sorry. I have to put that out there. You know, I had to battle the fact that I discovered that black men were involved with the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Lewis Till. So in 2007... Carolyn Bryant wasn't, wasn't the only one that was being looked at. It was also Henry Lee Loggins, who was one of the black men who was forced to participate, or who we believe was forced to participate in the crime. I right. had to come right. to the realis realization. If, if, your documentary, if your documentary, sir, that, that, that one, I, I saw one documentary where they interviewed at least one or two non-white black people uh, in the interview. Uh, I, I can't think of the name of the people. You probably have named them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. they, they, their, their accent was so strong, Southern-like, that they actually had to have captions underneath. Was that your documentary? Okay, okay. That was my yeah, documentary. That, 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 yeah, that, that was a great stories. documentary. That, that, that's the most, that was the most extensive documentary on Emmett Lewis Teal that I ever saw or heard about. That's a very good documentary. Very, well, very good. That, 
that was the documentary that got the the case reopened. So, you know, I had to battle the fact of discovering this information, which I wasn't the, I I can't take full credit of it because it was people like James Hicks of the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper who actually uncovered this information during the, during his own investigation um, in Mississippi during the trial and people like Mega Evers. Mega Evers was the first to come across there were black people were involved with the kidnapping and murder. I only went back and discovered this information and basically wrote their names down and discovered that some of these people were still alive. That's all I did. You know, the right. information mm-hmm. was there. Thank God for the black press. You know, yeah. I hope that, you know, the black press understand the power that we possess and why we need, it's needed today. Because back then, they didn't worry about legalities or anything like that. They just told you what they saw and what they found out. And that was the reason why the case was reopened, because that information was well-preserved. No one had ever went back to review this information and to see if it had merit any type of investigation or, or the, the information was legit. I discovered it was, and that's why the case was reopened. And so, you know, what I'm trying to get at is that Henry Lee Loggins had a choice as well. It wasn't the right choice. It could have been him or his family. But I had to come to a realization that he could have been charged with accessory to the murder as well because he participated in it. Now, on the flip side with Carolyn Bryant, you know, hey, I know she was complicit. In this. Mm-hmm. I know she had a role in this. And you know, it, 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 it's just a thought. It's just a thought that I've had from something that you said earlier. Uh, unfortunately, I think there is a, a rival, uh, and that's the, that's Trayvon Martin and and his killer, who is still alive, also George Zimmerman. Exactly. Uh, that that is that is being uh, over and over broadcast. Most unfortunate. Yes, yes, sir. The exact same thing that happened to Trayvon Martin, you can see in Emmett Till. The exact same thing. And so this is when I when I when I say that history is repeating itself. It is. It's just that I hope that our young millennials and you know even our elders begin to learn and, and be encouraged to teach and begin to learn more and more about our civil rights history because it's very important. This enemy that we're fighting today is nothing new. It's a generational ill. Sometimes a generational ill would take generations to solve. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's very important for us to, to really look back at our history now and understand what must be done to combat this, this ultimate this ultimate monster, which is racism and this ongoing white supremacy. Racism, we can never stop. Let me be real with that, because I think along the line, we continue to fight this never-ending fight. Racism is going to always exist. It's the world we live in. But we need to start embracing the differences that we have. If you begin to look at the differences people have and we can embrace the differences, then we can begin to live among each other in a righteous manner. Racism, you can always have racism because man is going to always have prejudice against someone. It's never going to end. Man is going to want to always be top another man. That's the way it is. 
So I think what's important right now is for us to begin to embrace the differences and not only embrace the differences, but be aware, man, be aware of this history, our rich history, because what we're dealing with today is not something that's new. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. One of the biggest obstacles that I've been fighting all these years is to produce the movie on Emmett Till's murder. We're finally doing that. I'm going into production in August. Whoopi Goldberg is directing. For the first time in history, we're going to finally get a narrative film done on the murder of Emmett Till. The reason why it's so important is because I believe that the late Mamie Till Mowley, my dear friend, had the blueprint to our liberation because there's no other movement that has been as powerful than the civil rights movement. No other movement in the world that existed has been powerful, more powerful than the civil rights movement. Mamie got it right. The world need to understand what she did to get there. And I think when this film is shown, when it's done, finally done, or when I think people will learn more about the Emmett Till case and more about the courageousness of Mamie Till Mobley, we, be, we will begin to understand what we must do to survive in this country. Appreciate that. Uh, retired firefighter, uh, thank you for the questions. Um, I did not see any other hands off top. Uh, you, you are encouraging listeners, Mr. Beauchamp, to make sure that they kind of keep an eye. You think that there could be some news as to whether or not the uh, investigation into the Till case will be reopened. You think there could be some news in the coming days or weeks? I, I, I kind of feel that in my gut. I kind of feel <laughs> it's strange because I kind of feel like when I first started and I was anticipating the case to be reopened. Mm. I have this gut feeling that it, we may hear something soon because of the ongoing pressure being done by members of Congress, um, the threats of of protesting in Mississippi, and so on. So I kind of feel like we may hear something sooner rather than later. Wow. You mentioned uh, your movie, Whoopi Goldberg, doing the uh, directing, coming out, giving a a narrative depiction of the murder of Emmett Till. Uh, You you said that uh, you've seen reports where the movie rights for Dr. Tyson's new book are also (laughs) available. Is that correct? Yeah, that was something that was shocking to me because, you know, in the midst of trying to really um, give my friend the benefit of the doubt, um, you know, I saw this article released on the, in the Hollywood Reporter advertising the rights for his book, be, you know, being available. And I, I just thought that was just, ah, <laughs> it hurt me a little bit because I'm like, I'm trying to, to have a sane mind and not um, make an assumption before I actually hear him speak. Because all the interviews that's been done, no one has asked him the right questions, I feel. And I think these questions are, you know, things that he should answer. And, you know, knowing, as I said, knowing him for a long period of time and the people around him, I want to give him that respect. You know, um, again, I don't believe what has happened is coincidence. I think things happen for a reason. And maybe this is the season and time to say that we should not give up on the story of Emmett Till, especially in light of all the the traumatic episodes 
that we have been going through with this ongoing police violence throughout the country. Things happen for a reason. And I became very spiritual working on this particular case because it could not be anything but a higher power <laughs> that has put me in this position to speak for the voiceless. Wow. Hopefully, uh, Mr. Timothy, Dr. Excuse me, Timothy B. Tyson is not doing a William Bradford Huey, uh, as you pointed out when we spoke oh, last yes. week. Uh, that's the, the yes. white journalist who got the uh, big story for Look Magazine, where he got uh, J.W. Millam and uh, Roy Bryant to come and, and confess to what they had done to murder Emmett Till. He paid them, I think, a few Absolutely. thousand dollars and then tried to get the movie out to see if he could make some money off of that. Uh, we're, we're hoping... That that is not the case, uh, just being uh, also repeating itself uh, in the form of Dr. Tyson. But we shall see. I think that uh, I definitely agree with that. Time reveals all. We shall see <laughs> in the uh, in the coming days. It has been uh, fabulous having you back with us, Mr. Beauchamp, uh, talking about your uh, outstanding work. I would encourage listeners. Uh, and I mean, when Mr. Beauchamp, when he says, you know, hey, this is about justice. This is about uh, honoring the relationship that he had with Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, uh, working with, with her for nearly a decade. Uh, he is not out here trying to make lots of money off of his work. You can watch the documentary on YouTube uh, where he's not getting a cent uh, for the plays or what have you just to make sure that it's out there and people can get the information. If you haven't seen it, take time to watch it. Uh, it's linked in the description for the program. Really top-notch, outstanding work. One of the best documentaries uh, that I've seen. And he has other uh, outstanding work as well. The documentary he did on uh, the Moore's Ford Bridge lynching. Also tremendous work. Just really, really uh, outstanding film work. And we will be eagerly awaiting uh, the Whoopi Goldberg project coming out uh, on Emmett Till as well. So definitely we'll be looking forward to hearing from you soon. And uh, we will keep our eyes out for the investigation as well as more from uh, Dr. Tyson. Well, thank you so much. I just want to leave your audience with this. I have to say, you know, one of the most powerful people that I've met in my lifetime was Dr. John Henry Clark. And he often stated in a quote that no people are truly free until they become the instrument of their own liberation. You know, freedom is, to be, is not to be queeded from one generation to the next. Each generation must take and maintain its freedom with its own hands. That's something that I hope that all of us could take with us and understand that it's going to be this generation, it's our obligation to take our freedom back. And that's what's important, whether it's in the courtroom or on the streets. It's important to make that stance and understand the atmosphere that we're living in. It's nothing new. Black people have always been resilient people. We're going to survive. We're going to survive. But I think we need to really be conscious now to what is happening. Because without being conscious, we stand, you know, unfortunately, we stand a chance of being extinct. So let's, let's keep it going. Um, thank you for allowing me this platform, Gus. I, I mean, I'm sorry because it's been very, it's been a very emotional <laughs> two weeks for me, man. Because it's like coming back to this case after all this time, I'm revisiting my childhood in a sense. This is what created me. If it wasn't for the murder of Emmett Till, I would not be a filmmaker. It would not have happened. 
So, you know, it's just very important that I leave that message. And I just want to thank you for the platform and for giving me this opportunity to speak. Man, pleasure is ours. Thank you for uh, joining us and emphasizing the importance of black journalists uh, within this case. Always like to get that in on the broadcast. Please enjoy the rest of your evening, Mr. Beauchamp, and we will look forward to having you back on the program soon, sir. Take great care. Absolutely. You too. Good thank evening. Mm-hmm. Context of White Supremacy, documentary filmmaker, researcher, Mr. Keith Beauchamp. Uh, really glad to have him back on the program with us and uh, encourage folks again to read that article uh, that I got published in Atlanta Black Star where it covers some of the things that we had talked about uh, before Mr. Beauchamp and I last week uh, dealing with this case. Uh, we'll take a uh, quick commercial and then if folks have uh, anything that they would like to get in before uh, we wrap we will make time for that as well uh, I will just take a, a short break uh, this is a snippet from another documentary film that I thoroughly enjoy this is not Mr. Beauchamp's work this is about a uh, purge of black residents in Kentucky that happened in the early 1900s uh, and they went back and talked with some of the uh, residents, white residents obviously, uh, and many of them knew all about this incident and when they drove the Negras out, but this is one of my favorite lines from the film uh, Trouble Behind uh, that came out some years ago I had a dog growing up Show you a picture of him. Black, white feet, white throat, little white tip on his tail. I love that dog. That dog knew when I was going to service. He knew when I got in trouble. He knew when I was phoning home. He'd come up, lay on the porch, and look at the phone. And it, and it'd ring if it was from me. He'd bark like wild, make sure somebody answered the phone. You know what his name was? Nigger. Nigger. And that was your dog. That's right. I loved that dog. That, that wasn't no bad name. That's because he was black, shiny, pretty, muscular. Come on, nigger. You see? I wasn't using it in a bad way. They were run out of town not because they were black. They were run out of Corbin because they were drinking, gambling, and raising all kinds of cane with the, their newfound uh, pocket money from the railroad. Yes, Emmett Till, Trayvon Martin, Negras are always raising king. Mm. You heard uh, the little bit of Dixie uh, at the end there. It's it is amazing. I can say that is one other uh, bit of trivia that I have picked up <clears throat> over the years that we've been doing uh, the cows. I eight years eight year anniversary next week. I am really good at picking up the melody for Dixie, uh, and it is amazing the number of. Uh, different shows or just events or music or wherever it, it is amazing the number of ways that it will uh, pop up and be incorporated uh, into various events it is uh, truly one of the hymns of white supremacy uh, anyway I can I can only say I'm so glad uh, that we were able to have Mr. Beauchamp on the program this evening I thought it was uh, great for uh, a number of reasons uh, I'm glad we got the article and we got the audio to cover uh, more information, but I'm really glad we were able to do the program and even had a little perseverance because uh, I think it took him a little while to join us. I think he joined us maybe 20, 25 minutes or so uh, into the broadcast. So it took a little uh, perseverance 
to uh, hang out, be patient. I think someone says that regularly as well. But I'm so glad to, to be able to, to share his views uh, with listeners. Folks are able to hear his thoughts on this case and Dr. Tyson's uh, brand new book, uh, The Blood of Emmett Till. Uh, only few things that I will get in. Uh, number one, I'm so reminded. I guess that's one of the things I'm bummed about. I was not able to figure out a way to weave in. Vincent Woodard's text, The Delectable Negro, into the article that I wrote about what Mr. Beauchamp thought about Carolyn Bryant Dunham and Dr. Tyson's new book. Uh, Because in my view, Timothy Tyson's what he's doing, that is exactly the cannibalism and necrophilic consumption of black people that Vincent Woodard interrogates in The Delectable Negro, Uh, even in the title, The Blood of Emmett Till. It's it's literally having a race soldier in the form of this white historian and author feasting on the corpse of Emmett Till. Uh, I can write this book and get lots of attention, maybe even make it into a movie, uh, and then at the same time protect and defend this now 80-year-old white woman. Uh, And he still, if you read the book, he portrays her as how beautiful she is and lots of quotes from the the 50s at the time of the trial where she's, you know, the the prettiest, fairest southern flower of all and just how many beauty contests she won. And he even describes her as still being handsome when he interviewed her when she's almost 80 years old. Uh, You just you get lots of that throughout the book and the quote that he gave to The New York Times where she was coerced into, you know, spinning this yarn about Emmett Till sexually accosting her. And, you know, she feels really bad about it and she's carrying this tremendous burden. It's protecting a white woman while feasting on the corpse of a dead black child. In my opinion, it is just another conform of consumption, uh, consumption of black people. And his first book is Blood done sign my name and it's also about a black uh, 20 year old black male who was killed under very similar circumstances in North Carolina in 1970 so just having this fetish uh, for going back and looking at these cases and he talks about the how that case had such an impact on him because the children talked about it and it happened he grew up in North Carolina so it happened in an area he was familiar with and seeing everything play out and then he went and talked to the same thing he went and talked to the white people involved with the case and and all of that I mean it's just it's it's the same pattern uh, where white people, they practice racism and then uh, the next generation of white people, they get to come back and study how their white ancestors practiced racism and studied the dead bodies of the black people who were killed and just continue the consumption. That's just how I view uh, the behavior of Dr. Tyson and whites in general. That's the way I think people should think about it. With regards to some of the things that I think that stood out, I just, I think it's it's so critical uh, when we do not have a proper way of applying how we will think and process the behaviors speech of white people i think that's one of the main one of the main things that needs to change in terms of application to counter racist code that means we do not allow our emotions to impact the decisions that we make how we assess what's happening under the system of racism white supremacy i've said consistently White friends, I cringe when I hear those two words together. Uh, I just I think that that really corrupts your counter racist software to use a metaphor. It corrupts your counter racist software having white friends.
there cannot be white people that we think of as this is a friend. I'm cool with this guy. I've known this white guy, this white gal for a long time, or we had a great time back at this point, or they helped me get a car, whatever it is. Uh, All of that, in my view, I've seen consistently, and I've seen this within myself. I know personally when Gus, when I had a white friend, that it was the same thing. I was hesitant to just follow logic. This white person, this is an individual classified as white, that is doing things that seem to be what I would expect from a racist. They're practicing racism. Just label it what it is. It doesn't have to be a whole lot of, you know, painstaking. Well, maybe, and maybe they... Giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's another one. That's just, and again, it's VGQ, Mr. Beauchamp. He's a victim of racism, white supremacy. He has his view. I'm a victim of racism, white supremacy. I have my view. I'm just restating what I said when he was on the program with us. Counter racist code. White people can never, ever, for any reason, get the benefit of the doubt. It is just not permissible. And I mean, we're talking about the case of a murdered, tortured, castrated black child certainly in this case no white people can get the benefit of the doubt but I just I say that every day and again we've had white people on this program where they follow the logic if there's a system of racism white supremacy and it's not that many whites on the planet to begin with all of them have to be suspects they cannot get any sort of excuse or justification where we can find some other way of rationalizing what their behavior is, particularly if that behavior, the end result, is a harmed black person. It just cannot be. And, and again, these this is just why I say, I mean, this is, you know, what the system of white supremacy produces. Uh, this is what terrorism produces. You have a lot of people that are afraid of indicting white people, that are afraid of calling out someone like Dr. Tyson. I'm not saying that that's Keith Beauchamp, but I mean, that does happen for a lot of non-white people. Uh, you see that exactly with the Emmett Till case, where you had black people who were afraid. That was why so many people thought that what uh, Emmett Till's uncle did, uh, Moses Wright, standing up and identifying uh, J.W. Uh, Milam and Roy Bryant identifying them in court and testifying and writing those argu- uh, articles saying that he heard uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham uh, in the vehicle, that he heard her voice. He knew she was out there uh, in that lynching party. That's why it took so much courage, because you had so many black people, even now, 2017, who are afraid of identifying a white person as being racist that's what terrorism does but i just think that's huge he did uh acknowledge having a white grandparent and i think he even shared a few stories about dating uh sexual activity or dancing or dating or whatever it is with a white person Uh, i think he said his parents told him when he went out dating a white person he said he was doing i think some interracial dating and his parents said don't don't let yourself become another Emmett Till uh, talking, you know, about the dangers of that sort of behavior. I think a lot of that can just have a big impact on how we think about and perceive white people. I think it can even have a lifelong impact. Uh, certainly, you know, you can break that when you get accurate understanding of racism, white supremacy. But for a lot of victims, it can have just, you know, a, a really powerful impact uh, and really hamper our ability to just See what we're looking at. What are we looking at? We're looking at a racist. (laughs) Maybe this is a racist who doesn't call us nigger to our face. Maybe this is a racist who has been nice to us previously. Maybe this is even a racist that many black people think is cool. Again, we follow the logic. If the logic says looks like this is probably a racist, that's just what we should use. 
I will hush there again. I'm really glad we got a lot more information about the uh, case out and Carolyn Bryant Dunham's role and the role of white women. That's something that should never be minimized, understated. The role, the crucial, essential role of white women in the maintenance of the system of white terrorism worldwide. Uh, glad we got more of that information out. And hey, maybe it will happen. Maybe there will be, you know, more pressure and, and they'll have, you know, maybe another grand jury or trial or whatever it is uh, to see what they're going to do with this 80 uh, year old, uh, lovely, fair white woman. Uh, with that, uh, folks have any comments that they want to get in uh, before we wrap things up. Uh, I'll check in with Firefight. I'm just checking in with folks who didn't get a chance to share at all. Uh, Roz, did you have any any comments or feedback you wanted to offer about the uh, broadcast, which you heard from Mr. Keith Beauchamp? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to the Firefighter and Florida and the other calls and listeners. I came in extremely late. I'm disappointed, but um, actually I was um, I had another program that I was doing before I start, called into this one, so I missed um, a healthy portion of it, and I heard the tail end. And I'm glad that um, there, there are moves being made to uh, have this, this disagreeable pink-plus female uh, in, uh, indicted in the system of white supremacy. She's basically lived most of her uh, sick, sadistic life already. Um, and she has grandkids, she's going on vacation, she's lived the full life that white people live at the expense of the lives of black people. So I just, I just hope that, um, like he said, courtroom justice does take place. I don't, um, I don't believe that it will because there's just a system of white supremacy, but I hope that it does. Um, it's really great that, um, that Mrs. Till, uh, Mrs. Mobley, uh, God, God rest her, uh, the ancestors lift her up. Um, um, established this relationship with Mr. Beauchamp. It is a beautiful thing to see that he has taken the mantle of that ancestral obligation to continue the fight that she employed him to do. Um, I look at that as similar to what you're doing um, and how uh, you as a student of Dr. Welsing have just transformed the lives of myself and many others who call into the show, and I thank you for that as well. Um, one thing that I looked at, just excuse me, taking a step back and looking at the whole situation is that our ancestors are powerful and way more powerful than I think a lot of us give them credit for. I've had personal experiences with this, so I'm speaking from experience. But just to see that this creature has gotten away with murder for, what, 82 years, and the case has come back now at this particular point in her life to, um, to quote-unquote, haunt her proverbially really speaks to the fact that the, the spirit of the ancestor Emmett Till, and may the ancestors lift you up as well, um, the spirit of Emmett Till is not resting peacefully because of what was done to him, and he's not letting her rest, which he should not. And when I thought about it, I thought of the delectable Negro. When the story came up, I believe, of the slave George um, that was quartered after shattering the, the water pitcher that he had to get water for the slave master with, I remember in the text they said the next day an earthquake destroyed the shack that he was murdered in. And I thought the ancestors created that earthquake because they didn't want any other slave to be killed in that space, and they also did not want that, that rotten white creature to have a, a hiding place where he can cordon off these slaves and terrorize them while he did his delectable Negro eating machine. They did not want that space to be further used to subjugate black people. So within 24 hours after that black male was sacrificed, that building came down. 
And that, to me, was the ancestors speaking about the heinous act that took place in that edifice, no different than Emmett Till's spirit is speaking, with this case coming out and her now telling the truth of what really happened, which we all basically knew from the beginning. This just confirms what we already knew to be true about white women in the first place. And like you said, no benefit of the doubt, no quarter. They need to pay. Justice needs to be served immediately, like you say. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. And part of that is taking care of, of, of uh, white females like her. Thank you so much. And I, I'll meet my line, Beth. For sure. For sure. Uh, retired firefighter, did you have any uh, commentary? I know you got your question. Did you have any uh, commentary from what you heard from, from the broadcast, what you wanted to share? Yes, sir. Uh, first and foremost, uh I'd just like to let you know I did I uh responded to your article uh as suggested. Uh basically uh I put down uh a believed ac- accurate uh article on the participation of Miss Donham in Emmett Till's murder and Mr. Tyson assisting this old white woman and I have in parentheses racist suspect at the expense of the Mobley family and non white people worldwide. Uh, uh, I have a quick, quick question, uh, was, did I hear the guest state that, uh, racism will never end? Yep. He did say that. Yeah, I thought I did. Uh, basically, uh, I was thinking about the codified response to that. And I think it is VGQ first and foremost, and uh, because, you know, questions come to my mind, well, you know, uh, we, those of us who uh, are attempting to become aware of this problem, why will we be working to uh, uh, working and and, uh, studying about what it is and how it works, and we don't think that it can come to an end? Uh, but anyway, VG, VGQ on that as, as far as, as far as that concern. Uh, but, uh, logic tells me as, as I've stated, uh, to him before that, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, basically, uh, duplicate what I think I heard you say. Uh, uh, if, if anyone thinks they're going to, someone is going to, Go in to where wherever that white woman is at right now. First of all, she's been she's been uh, evasive since 1955. Uh, actually, uh, that uh, audio that I heard of the of the resistance of whoever that was, whoever that was uh, uh, that was helping protecting her, uh, sound it almost sound like Ruby Ridge in a sense. Uh, before someone put some hands on that white woman, they would, they would, uh, uh, fight to the end, uh, 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 as far as that concern. And as I mentioned before, as far as unfortunately, uh, uh, some of our behavior, which is, and I will say initiated by the system of racist white supremacy, forgiving white people, uh, if, if they, if they're going to forgive a, a, uh, 20-ish, however young uh, Dalen Roof Roof is, uh, white male, for something that's in present living color of murdering nine black people only a few months ago. Uh, 
I don't think that they're going to put their hands on this 80-year-old white female about something that, quote-unquote, took place uh, in 1955, uh, as far as that's concerned. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, 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 that was significant, what, what, what he said. Cause he, oh, also, he, he mentioned the word emotional at least about three or four times in the interview. So that was very observant on your, your, your behalf of, of, of talking about uh, what level should emotions be at and where it shouldn't be at. Because he did mention the word emotional as far as describing himself and how he, how he feels. But I appreciate his honesty. I appreciate his, how honest he was. And uh, I can almost, like I said, I can almost sense how hard he has been working over the years because it's obviously based on his, his personal background, he has been very affected by, by that particular incident. Uh, unfortunately, as I uh, may have reminded him of it, it's, 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 it's been duplicating itself uh, to whereas, uh, uh, you know, uh, Emmett Till, I mean, not Emmett Till, but uh, Trayvon Martin, but I'm like this personally, you know, I, I'm not doing this because it's something I like to do, you know, as far as that concern. Uh, my efforts as far as uh, taking time to, develop an understanding of racism, white supremacy, what it is, and how it works, and, and making attempts through exchanging views and different, the, the four things that Mr. Fuller suggests is to put an end to it. <laughs> and, I think, and, and logic would tell me that's, that's what we should all, all of us should be doing, from, not from, a, from a, uh, a retired firefighter's view, but from just logic, to put an end to it and replace it with something better. And uh, and that's that's basically all I have to say, you know, uh, to it. But it it, it was a you know nice interview. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you for the uh, comments. Definitely uh, repeat that again for. And I would say this across the board, man. That is one thing you can see if you look throughout history. For a black journalist, white people do not make that an easy profession. Uh, and I mean, you can check in with anybody. Ida B. Wells. Mumia Abu Jamal, Minister Malcolm X, is tons of folks uh, that you can check in. They make that extremely difficult. Uh, Daisy, Daisy Bates, she uh, was one of the uh, black female adults who worked closely with the Little Rock Nine. They're uh, what they call yeah. school integration in uh, Arkansas. But she and her husband, they operated a uh, black uh, newspaper uh, in Arkansas and white people drove right. them out of business uh, in response to their help uh, in trying to help mm -hmm. mentor these children uh, in school, which was a main source of income for them, the newspaper that they operated. But white people do not make it easy for black journalists. Uh, you can say that, you know, over and over and over again, uh, sharing comments, likes, all of that definitely uh, helps. And I would say, especially if you are a black journalist uh, and you actually are attempting to discuss racism, white supremacy mm -hmm. uh, accurately when you report or write whatever it is you are doing. They especially are going to make that difficult, but be that as it may. Right. 
thanks to the folks who, who shared and commented. Uh, I did email uh, Dr. Timothy Tyson about being a guest on the program, and I did not hear back from him. Not that I was surprised or stunned. Uh, that is one thing mm-hmm. I might uh, share with uh, Mr. Beauchamp uh, if he talks to him again to, uh, hey, if you know, you're really up and up and about it, I've hung out on the cows twice. You know, we've talked about your book and, and my film work. He said, I think specifically, Mr. Beauchamp said that Mr. Tyson, when he goes out to do interviews, that he is not being asked the correct questions. Come to the cows. I'm sure they will do a better job asking some tough questions uh, about why you didn't contact the family, uh, why you didn't take this information uh, from someone who was a suspected accessory in a murder trial. Why didn't you take this information to the FBI or appropriate authorities? Why did you go and seal this information for the next 20 years of someone who is a suspect in a murder case that has not been uh, closed? I would love to hear his uh, responses. I've not heard. I've heard. I haven't heard every interview because he's done a lot of them, but I've heard a number of interviews, seen a number of articles. None of them uh, touch any of this subject matter. None of them question or ask uh, about the way that he portrayed uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham in the book. No, nobody asked about why is she taking up half of the book talking about who she dated in high school and how many beauty pageants she won in high school and all this other nonsense. What I mean, why is that detracting from the story of this 14 year old black child being tortured and killed? Uh, just I have not seen those type of questions being asked in uh, most of the interviews that he's done uh, or even reviews that people have written about his book. Now, Mr. Beauchamp, when I spoke with him last week, he did say that a number of people have contacted him and they have been upset. I got the impression that there was a number of black people have contacted him and they voiced concern, similar frustration about Tyson's book. If that is happening, that's wonderful. I hope there's more of it and we should all try and agitate to see if we can get more of it. But I have not seen that. I don't know if folks out listening, if if, if you have heard people talk about this book or the general sense that you uh, get from whatever <clears throat> reports or whatever you've heard about this. If you all want to share that, uh, that is fine and dandy as well. Uh, but hopefully, uh, as this all continues, uh, I will pay attention to, to Dr. Tyson's interviews. I'll report if I hear any updates and I'll ask him again. Uh, now that we've had uh, Mr. Beauchamp on the program, the articles have uh, been published a couple of days. I'll ask him again and see if he's down to come on the program and uh, answer a few questions. Uh, spill the beans uh, for Dr. Tyson. Anything else folks need to get in on the subject matter? Everybody satisfied? That is fine as well, too. I'll assume folks are are good. I did get uh, assistance. Uh, Emmy and some of the other uh, cows listeners, they chipped in and uh, invested some time reading uh, Mr. Tyson's book uh, and making some notes, uh, things that stood out, some of the observations and things that they had uh, while reading uh, his book. I even uh, went back and was doing some checking on his previous book, uh, Blood Doesn't Sign My Name. And this is someone he's done research on, Robert F. Williams. He's been in a lot of documentary films that deal with racism in North Carolina. He was in a documentary that came out within the last, I think, two years uh, about the KKK. Uh, in North Carolina specifically. Uh, I mean, this is Tim, Dr. Tyson is not ignorant uh, about racism. None of his behavior should be uh, chalked up to ignorance. But when I went back to check out Blood Doesn't Sign My Name, which again is about this uh, black 20-year-old who was killed in North Carolina, I believe in the 1970s, uh, he talked about 
having a black nanny in his household growing up. And he talks about this scene, which could be a total fabrication. He could have totally made this up. White people lie all the time. Anyway, in, in Blood Doesn't Sign My Name, he talks about this scene where Dr. King is assassinated in 1968. His black nanny, she sees that this has happened and she's obviously, she's distraught, she's crying. And he's like, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong? She tells him Dr. King has been killed. And he says, well, it'll be, and he's like 10 at the time. So he says, uh, well, it'll be okay. And she, you know, gets so upset. She says, you know, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay for Dr. King. It wasn't okay for Jesus when they nailed him on the cross. And it's not going to be okay for, for Dr. King. They've killed him. And uh, Timothy Tyson, he writes that, you know, well, we think it's okay. You know, God died for our sins and, you know, he, he made that sacrifice so that we could all be Christians and, and get his father's love. And he says that the housewife, she breaks down into tears and she hugs him and, you know, this touching moment and he, he reflects back on it. And, you know, he kind of offers, you know, a different opinion that her in this moment of crisis, she has to stop to comfort him and his naive response. My response to all of this was number one, this could all be a lie. Number two, even if this all is true, this is just, in my view, another illustration of where we have a black person who dies, but the attention has shifted to spotlight on me and my interaction with this black uh, black female who is being further victimized, having to work for this white family, uh, a, a family that I suspect of being racist uh, in this moment of her consoling and taking care of me as opposed to being allowed to grieve for the loss of Dr. King and the implications that she thought that would have on, you know, dealing with racism on the whole and what have you. It's no, I have to shift to take care of you, which has been the whole history, the whole pattern of racism, white supremacy, where black people are not allowed to care for comfort, nurture ourselves, each other. We have to shift and nurture, care for, take care of racists, racist man, racist woman, racist child anywho uh, we should be here tomorrow workplace racism always enjoy every Thursday every Thursday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific for workplace racism uh, folks have problems or if you figured out some codification uh, that is helping you you know minimize trouble on the job minimize your contact conflict excuse me with other victims of racism and just keeping racists up off of you at the job share call in let us know we'll be looking forward to the exchange tomorrow uh delectable negro our fourth installment that's coming up this third uh, excuse me friday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific Delectable Negro, Vincent Woodard, Saturday, compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on news, observations from the past seven days, and this Sunday, Global Sunday, talk on racism. That is the one program. It's early uh, to make sure we can include folks from different spots around the world, uh, but that'll be this Sunday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 11, uh, excuse me, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 1 p.m. Mountain and 12 noon Pacific for the global Sunday talk on racism this Sunday. Uh, if you have any questions, problems, can't find something in the archives, confusion, feel free. Drop us an email and we will answer your question as promptly as possible until justice at Gmail dot com until justice at Gmail dot com. Right on. Uh, folks have anything else they need to get in before we wrap up? Everybody good?
I will assume folks are satisfied. Uh, thank you kindly to all the folks uh, who tuned in live. I uh, hope it was a constructive investment of your Wednesday evening. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Listener supported counter racist radio. Uh, when you hit the blog, you'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will hook you up with a physical mailing address, new address, new mailing address for uh, folks who had the old mailing address, new mailing address. Uh, just drop us an email and we will hook you up uh, if you would like to invest that way. Huge thanks to all the folks who have supported, uh, kept us rolling for almost eight years. Uh, hope we have helped people get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. And uh, hopefully we have not been uh, wasting broadcast time uh, for nearly a decade. Uh, with that, thanks again to Mr. Beauchamp. I, that's one thing I would encourage people uh, who look for material. If you have uh, younger children, when I say younger, like 10, maybe 10, 12, 9, maybe um, looking for material that your children can watch to learn about racism. I think uh, the untold story of Emmett Lewis Till, that might be a good one. It's shorter. It's not you know a five-hour documentary. I think it's only a little bit over an hour, uh, and I think it'll hold their attention. That's a good one. Uh, some of his work with the injustice files that kind of goes back and looks at uh, cold civil rights cases and just a lot of cases dealing with racism, period, uh, where black people have been harmed, sometimes killed. I think those segments are really informative uh, as well. Uh, he has uh, the segment that he did on the Moore's Ford Bridge lynching, I thought was super constructive. Just a lot of great work. I think you could share that with uh, with offspring and even older victims, I suspect, would uh, learn a lot uh, from his work. You can follow him uh, on Twitter. He generally puts updates up about when some of his work is going to be shown uh, on national television, that sort of thing. Check him out. Big fan, Mr. Keith Beauchamp. With that, I state again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, I've seen a lot of evidence that non-white people, we end up with a lot of easily avoidable problems. Uh, if we just ditched the alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, whatever the other narcotics are, uh, it might solve a lot of our problems, keep us from having uh, difficulties with racist man, racist woman, racist child if we can be sober uh, so that our brain computer can be operating uh, at maximum efficiency i know dr welsing would certainly encourage that uh, i've seen too much evidence that the daniel holtz clause the darren wilson's uh, even the george zimmerman's they have a much easier time include the carolyn bryant dunham's as well they just have a much easier time terrorizing us when we're under the influence not able to think clearly. Uh, I think the evidence shows that they terrorize a lot of us even when we are sober. They do not need any advantages, any help in maintaining their system. I think that's one thing we could do that would be super helpful. Really be about the business of sobriety. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. 
It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.